HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
of culinary skills uh, with a background of sort of all local food systems knowledge, how to shop at the farmer's market on food stamps, how to make baby food from scratch, how to grow your own in your backyard, that kind of thing. So it's very much in the same vein, and now, but now you have a business around your love instead of a nonprofit around your love. Right. Well, actually, that's why I moved out here. It's, it's, you know, it's a little bit easier to get grant funding and go out and do altruistic things, and it's a little bit harder to try and plop your ethics into regular revenue, profit-driven models. So we're still experimenting with whether it works or not. <laughs> so you're in, you're in five years, and you tell us about the restaurant. Like, if somebody was walking in the door right now, what would they see? They would see a retrofitted trailer covered in galvanized steel with vegetarian banh mi's coming out the door <laughs> on our patio. Wow. But um, we're highly seasonal. We change our menu every day for the most part, and we're very pig-centric, lots of pork. Uh, we do our own sausages, a lot of charcuterie, um, and vegetables, of course. But it's housed in a historic building, and so it's got a very distinct feel. Um, we're also a full bar and a live music venue, given that Athens is such a dynamic music hub for the country, especially for young people. Um, we decided that we really wanted that component. So we're kind of a one-stop shop for everything. Bacon, beer, and, and music. Yeah, and some politics thrown in, you know. <laughs> um, let's talk about pigs. We've been talking a lot about pigs on the show, and uh, I just butchered my pigs last weekend, and nice. it was great. We made back all the money that uh, it cost us to raise them in, over the course of the uh, workshop and selling a little bit of pork. And so let's let's talk about your relationship with the pig and where it's been going recently. Well, we raise mostly Tamworths on our farm. We have a few Berkshires also. Um, eventually they'll probably cross, we suspect, because that's what pigs do. Um, they're all forage raised. They've got about an acre right now that they're moving their way through. Um, and, you, you know, obviously it, inside of a restaurant system, pig is an animal that's really easy to maximize. Um, we purchase all of our animals whole and move through whole animals before we purchase another or slaughter another. Uh, that's a lot harder to do with the cow. It's easier to do with the pig because you have very little bone loss. Um, so most, almost all of, you know, your yield you're able to use. And it's a much more fun and interesting animal from a chef's perspective. Um, we do pay on hanging weight for all of our animals, and so there is always a little bit of loss after that in terms of um, blood and liquid and, in addition, bones. But you get a lot less with pig. You get a lot less loss. But for our, even for our cows right now, we average around 10% loss in between hanging weight and yield weight. Um, so just making sure that you can make all of that money back in the restaurant because you're putting out a good bit at the outset um, is kind of the key to the puzzle. And conversely, from a farmer's perspective, the fact that we pay on hanging weight, of course, is incredibly um, stabilizing. They've fronted the money to, or they've already invested the money to raise the animal, and then they've fronted the money to slaughter. So if they recoup that in one fell swoop, it's incredibly beneficial for the farmer. From a cash flow perspective for a restaurant, it's quite difficult when you're talking about you know, an animal that weighs 800 to 1,200 pounds like a cow. Um, 
So we're very lucky because we work with our own farmer, our own farm, and so we can actually find a happy medium where we parse out those payments into, say, two or three checks instead of, instead of one. Um, he recoups his money rather quickly, and we can actually manage our cash flow a little bit better. So, so two different, two different uh, businesses, farming and restaurant management, both of which have really slim margins. And so whenever you're finagling um, the kind of logistics of um, these kinds of exchanges, it's, everybody's got to be careful and, and, and savvy. Yeah, and I think the key is sort of convincing restaurants that there is a way to do it. And obviously from a chef's perspective, having a whole pig brought in or a half of a pig or a quarter of a cow, from a butchery perspective, is such a growing resurgence of love for that artisan trade. It's exciting and it's fun, but it only works for the manager and the owners if you can actually recoup your investment on it. And so sort of peppering the menu with various different cuts, all of which you pay the same price for, is, is, is how, you, how you kind of have to manage that. And we, we still are, are working at that, but we've built a couple of tools that kind of break it down for us rather easily um, and, and had some, you know, developed some gimmicks to, to figure it out as well. But So what's the toughest? What's the toughest sell? And, I mean, with us, for the pigs, it was amazing. Like, all this sausage, that seems like an easy sell. But what's the toughest sell? Yeah, definitely being able – that's why we started making our own sausage, because we can, we can grind a lot of trim not being the bad parts, but oftentimes the best parts, but cuts that are not as easy to sell for $20 a plate. Um, the hardest sell right now for us is still probably – awful, um, but we've, we make great strides. We have tongue on the menu every night, um, and it, we hide it in a taco, and, and we sort of dupe the rural Georgians into ordering the beef tacos, and then we let them know that it's tongue. I mean, it's on the menu. They just don't read the fine print. So, <laughs> um, but we do, we do mess around with trotters and, and sweetbreads and heart and brain and all sorts of different things and those are still difficult. We're not in a foodie community down here. We're sort of trying to raise one simultaneously. So it's a steep learning curve. So you're spending quite a lot of your energy doing basically educational work still even though you're managing a restaurant. Well that was our goal. I mean we're all sort of community-minded agriculturalists uh, we were never restaurateurs, so it's 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 difficult to be a waitress at Farm 255. You have to know a lot and you have to talk a lot. Um, there's definitely an indoctrination that happens, and we are deliberately educational, decidedly educational. I sort of like to joke that we uh, support our local farmers at local agriculture first, and second, we educate the community, and somewhere around third, we serve dinner. <laughs> and the number, and do you break even too? Yeah, absolutely. We do. Luckily, we actually make a profit. It's definitely not on. It's not definitely not a big one. It's not on the margins of a regular reg- restaurant. Um, but we we certainly have been successful. So we're very grateful for that. It depends on how you I'm, measure success. I think we've made a huge imprint in the community, and. Um, and I think the adventure is still figuring out things 
you know, like how to how to take a whole cow and make it work for both the farmer and the restaurant manager, especially inside of you know a regular restaurant with with regular margins or regular being you know, cost margins that you really are constantly striving towards, which we are as well. We're not holding ourselves to a different standard necessarily, but we're understanding if we don't meet it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the matrix where you're operating um, in Georgia. Not too long ago I was down there and I heard a statistic that there's, um, I think it was 84 million acres of agriculture in uh, in Georgia, and only 5,000 of them are organic. Is that right? I, you know, I, I don't know what that statistic it is, but whatever it is, it's probably tripled since you were here. Seth. It's insane how much in the four years the community has grown. When I was first here, I spent six months looking for driving around Georgia and Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi looking for sources and visiting farms that would be potential vendors for us. And there was really very little to choose from. And now I feel like I'm almost, you know, offended and insulted on a weekly basis because there's some other farm that some other restaurant is sourcing from that I've never even heard of. Um, wow. And it, it just seems like it's exploded down here in a way that probably California exploded, you know, tw 15 to 20 years ago. Um so we're behind, and we've got very paltry resources to work from, given how decimated the land still is from industrial ag here, especially in the southeast. Um, zero topsoil, zero fertility, backwards mentality, and very, very strong industrial ag um, embedded in the roots of every town and every community. Um, so every organic farm is definitely next to chicken houses or, you know, an industrial pork production system. That's not an easy environment, but I think I think it's it's more heartening to think about the strides that have been made down here. So And well, and so in terms of running a business in a in a smaller town environment, what's the difference for you as a business person, like dealing with the bureaucracies and um just I don't know, like Farm Credit or Farm Bureau or uh, those kinds of institutions, are they a little bit skeptical of organic? I mean, is, does the bank want to give you a loan, or, or how, does that, how does that play out? You know, we've been lucky enough to not really have to dabble in that world too much. I think what's confusing is, what's more confusing is really the presence of the university and how it operates. Um, the university is one-third of the population of the town, and it's 35,000 people. Um, and it's the oldest state-sanctioned university in the country, and it's one of the best ag schools in the country. And there's almost zero presence in terms of alternative, non-conventional organic ag in, in the school. And there's a tiny little environmental club, and my business partner, Kate, was the first graduate of the organic certificate program from within the horticulture department, and that was last year. So it's oh a very God. different climate, and I think it's still dominated by sort of an old-school ag mentality. But at the same time, I sort of like to look at that as an opportunity. So, like, for instance, last week I guest lectured at, um, at an ag econ class, which I do every year, and it's a bunch of seniors who are learning how to basically put up 
processing plants and how to take their knowledge of agriculture and put it into the business world. And I'm sort of the alternative uh, model speaker. And the week before me, the owner of the local Wendy's came in. And the week before that is the guy from the cotton production plant. And so I'm staring at a room of 30 camouflage-clad, Carhartt-wearing cattlemen sons who have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I just try and dress appropriately so they can better relate to me. I always wear boots and jeans, and then maybe <laughs> they'll listen to what I have to say. Well, it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that you're such a cutie pie. I'm sure you're much, you're much cuter than the um, head of the Wendy's restaurant. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of Southern Bells down here, so... <laughs> Um, so, so there's all these kids coming through this school, and they're not quite getting the opportunity to um, to see alternative paths for the you know professionally for their for their initiatives. What would be what would be our ideal? Like, what would it look like um, if we had a, a land grant university system that was taking as its goal um, to raise up a, a new generation of forward-thinking soil stewards? Well, I think obviously it's it's got to be slow and methodical. You can't plop down Santa Cruz's agroecology program into the University of Georgia and expect it to succeed, just like you can't put a grain-fed cow on pasture and expect it to succeed. So I think things are moving in the right direction. They're just slow, but everything's slow in the South. So it's just it's sort of thrilling to be a part of that progress, and that's why I moved here. I could have stayed in California and sort of filed in right behind, you know, the rest of the the legions in Alice Waters' army, but I think it's more interesting to be in the bush with the machete a little bit. <laughs> um, but what it, I think what it would look like would be just potentially a stronger faculty base in terms of our university um, and some risk-taking in terms of the university and their hiring. And I think they are trying to do that. Um, and, again, you do have within, say, the extension program, you have a lot of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s being hired by the extension program that do have alternative ways of thinking, and they are trying to infiltrate um, the old world Ways and I've definitely seen seen that, and that gives rise to some you know funding and backing of new farmers markets and sort of the underground push that still happens at kitchen tables, um, and it, it's just slow. Uh, but you know everything takes money and time. Those are the two basic ingredients. And carbon. So and if nitrogen. people have money and time to invest, other um, aspiring um, small business entrepreneurs and the agrarian, the agrarian mentality, what would you, um, what counsel would you give now that you've been doing this work for uh, a few years? How um, how would you counsel them to apply themselves to the frontier? To the to the entrepreneurs or to the fu to the courageous funders? <laughs> to the create oh the, well we need them both but I'm right. usually more like talking to the entrepreneurs. But if there's any funders listening, maybe you yeah. can <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I think the best thing that all of us can do is carve out a little bit of time to galvanize infrastructure. I think that's something that we all get lost in our individual projects, and I certainly do. And I've just sort of started to reap 
position myself within my business to make sure that I do have time to attend the chef advisory board meaning of the Georgia Organics, which are which is our local nonprofit that's really working so hard to to push the envelope in all directions in the southeast. Um, and that's a that's a three hour drive for me, an hour and a half each way, and it's it's got to be worth it. I think because it it helps to create. That way, I can participate in the ideas that eventually become projects that eventually become time and money, and and then we eventually have a functional local food system with all of its different pieces, with CSAs, with farmers markets, with young farmers, with old farmers, um, with sort of widespread knowledge, farm-to-school programs, restaurants, buying clubs, the whole gamut. Um, so I think my advice to young entrepreneurs would be obviously dive into your project, but carve out time and energy and space for working with others and for collaboration and for building systems that you all can lean on and support each other with. And I think, you know, the New, Hamp- uh, New Hampshire high mowing and all those guys and Jasper Hill, what they've been able to create in terms of how they support each other is really an amazing model, and I hope to be – I hope that we are – Helping to to build that here in the southeast, we're just we're just a little behind. <laughs> We've been visiting well, for too there. long on the porch. The way, the way that you've been going, you're going to get there sooner than you think. I'd say. So for you, that, <laughs> that like applying yourself to the logistics and to the um, the more structural elements of the food system and building that out to where there is you know meaningful and material collaboration between different players at various scales. For you, that. Um, that mostly figures in around meat, isn't it? Yeah, I think, like well, that's just because that's what I'm most interested in, and that is actually the diff- most difficult piece. It's the most difficult piece for the farmer to get rid of the whole animal, and it's the most difficult piece for the restaurant to take the whole animal. So that, to me, is the most exciting place to actually build structural tools, to build a toolbox for that chef, chef-to-farmer relation. Um, that so that each one understands the other. And then, of course, there's the distribution, which is smack in the middle of those two, which oftentimes in this system either the chef or the farmer takes on themselves. And so really rethinking what the distributor role is, what what is the job of the distributor in the new food system. Um, and I think it's the job of educator or translator between those two units. But it has to be... It has to be a vested interest distributor. It has to be somebody that understands both uh, the causes of of the dilemmas of both of those worlds, um, and so that that that's a kind of huge missing piece. But so that's an area where we need to be doing some recruitment for the um, the protagonists um, of the middle. Yes. Well, you have your fleet of bicycles, seven. I want a fleet of reefer trucks. <laughs> I want to I want to get your fleet of reefer trucks to come up here, um, and maybe we could do a workshop together. But I'll talk about it off the um, like later off, off the air. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just have an idea because we have to do it. Um, I want to teach a class about how to cook out of a box of meat, so that everybody knows how to buy a box of meat and cook out of it. And um, that's the next event after the duck pluck, but we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Olivia, it's so nice to have you on, and it's so nice to um, get to see you occasionally and uh, hear about all the things that you're doing. I wanted to make sure that you were able to talk about your um, favorite online or otherwise resources other people who are interested in this kind of a career path should definitely check out, and also your own personal website. Our website is farm255.com. It's pretty basic. We've got a lot of good resources on there. And I have to say, frankly, I really rely on sort of those person-to-person relationships for me right now to stay inspired and to stay in touch. Um, I'm I'm not an avid surfer, blogosphere, addict, face, tweeter, spacer, um, because I'm still looking, well, because this is how things operate down here. I mean, when you want to buy a house, you drive around in the neighborhood you want to buy a house in, and then you find the house you want to buy, and then you buy it. So (laughs) that's pretty much how things work down here. And it's not to say that there are not amazing Internet resources, but it's not something, like I said, I'm still trying to carve out enough time to to be having the face-to-face interaction with folks that are really pushing policy and pushing community action down here um, rather than reading about it. I do love my quarterly issue of meat paper, I will tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those meat paper kids are coming up to um, to Brooklyn. I just organized a goat for them. They're having parties next week with um, meat paper and diner journal and all sorts of pork-oriented people. Yeah, diner journal, they're pretty great, too. I'm still still pen and ink and paper. You know, I still have my subscriptions to the New York Times. It gets delivered on my door every day, so... Well, Olivia, thank you so much. I, um, I'll call you up and we'll talk more about other things. But okay, it's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on your show, Sav. It's great that you do this. Well, thank you all for joining us. This has been Greenhorns Radio. Um, we're here thanks to the support of the Hearst Family Ranch, which is grass-based beef out of um, Northern California. And we are delighted um, to have Olivia from Farm 255. Um, come join us again next week, and we'll be talking to a bean farmer from upstate New York. And if you haven't been on our on our blog lately and seen the pictures of our butchery workshop, you really should do that. It's www.thegreenhorns.wordpress.net, and they're really beautiful pictures, my beautiful pigs. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. 